Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. This is Think Sustainability, a show where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. And today we're going to start the show with a story from Miles Herbert about chickens. So given that um, we're sitting here in Sydney, um, the best way to, to try and imagine what it's like and the beautiful diversity that these birds offer is to just go through some of the lovely gifts that I've received over the years. This is Dr. Robin Alders. She really likes chickens. We have a lovely hen here from India, very feisty looking, very smart. She's actually got pink eyes, this one. Um, She's made from pewter. We have a lovely bead um, rooster here from South Africa. We have a very flash and uh, suave rooster here from Brazil. Lovely long legs, legs, beautiful tail. And we have uh, a... Uh, I don't know what to call this, a little model from Zambia where we have a woman with a baby strapped on her back riding a bike and on the back of the bike are some chickens and she's taking them off to market um, for sale. Dr. Alders is a veterinarian at the University of Sydney and has spent most of her career flying back and forth to Kenya, Mozambique and Zimbabwe, helping vaccinate chickens against something called Newcastle disease. Newcastle disease is a contagious bird virus that ends up not only killing the birds, but affecting the families and communities who breed chickens. In her travels, Alders has developed a particular fondness for the village chicken of sub-Saharan Africa. But as you look at all the different breeds of poultry across the world, they reflect us. And if you're a poor person, that chicken, particularly that backyard or or, um, village chicken that scavenges for its own food, is giving you something for almost nothing. In Australia, where our economy is dictated by the stock market, dollars and cents, in many developing countries, such as certain regions in sub-Saharan Africa, their currency is chickens. Chickens are their wealth. So if you have a few chickens, and and often just a few chickens are, are an identifier of extremely vulnerable households, those chickens can be traded, can be sold, can be offered as gifts to help you um, maintain your household livelihood through those difficult years. Although for many communities, chickens provide answers in the short term, acting as a paycheck or securing their next meal, Robin thinks they can be much more than that. In her opinion, she sees chickens as a long-term solution, helping lift these communities above the poverty line. You could go wild and dream of eating eggs, which normally you wouldn't do if the birds kept dying and you had to hatch those eggs. For, um, for replacement stock, you can trade them. You know, you can sell five roosters and get a goat. Go wild. Trade three goats for a cow, and all of a sudden, your options have just been transformed. So it's a bank account. It's, chickens are a little more like petty cash. I mean, who would trust a bank these days between you and I, really? So the chicken is there. You don't have to worry about the banker or commission. She's there and uh, she, you know, her, her, she just keeps going up in value. But if you start to look about those humble village chickens that are always there just scratching around, they're the ones that send the kids to school. They pay for the medical fees if someone has to go to the clinic. They provide social cohesion by being given as gifts to, to visitors. And um, they can contribute to food security um, if people start to feel that their numbers are stable. Robin has been an advocate for chickens for more than 20 years, but recently the poverty-alleviating potential of the bird 
has caught others' attention. Bill Gates is giving away a bunch of chickens. Bill Gates donating 100,000 live chicks to poor nations. Can a chicken change the world? Bill Gates says 100,000 birds is a start. The billionaire philanthropist launched the Coop Dreams initiative on Wednesday, June 8th. Gates has become a diehard advocate for chickens, with a plan to donate over 100,000 chooks to developing countries across the world. Gates says anyone living in extreme poverty is better off with a chicken, and if he was in their shoes, chickens, not computers, would be his new occupation. I'm delighted that that, um, Bill has moved from computers to to chickens. I think it's a smart move, Bill. I I agree with Bill Gates on that. This is Thumbi Mogwani, an infectious disease epidemiologist from the University of Washington in the United States. But he is currently in Kenya, studying how livestock production impacts food security and how animals like chickens can be hugely important for small families in poverty-stricken areas. He is speaking to me over WhatsApp in his small family home outside Nairobi, so the audio might not be perfect. I grew up in a farm. My parents... Um like many people in Africa, they always try and own a little farm and grew up, you know, with chicken, with cows, with goats, with sheep. Um, and I would say quite comfortably that my education and that of my siblings was actually paid from the sale of livestock, allowing us to go to school and get a good education. Bill Gates makes it seem really easy in an open letter on his personal blog. Gates detailed how just five chickens, if given to a household in poverty, will quickly turn into a flock of 40 and soon be generating an income of $1,000 a year for the owners. Is livestock ownership uh, really this simple? Actually, yeah, it's very simple. Even the cost of chicken, if you wanted to start a flock, it's, 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 not, it's not such a big investment in terms of money that you require to own three or five chicken. And so starting chicken farming is pretty easy, and, and I think that's, that's part of what Bill Gates is indicating. But even though his personal story is positive, Thumbi is not convinced all donations and all donor programs like the Gates Foundation are the best thing for developing countries. I think the only problem is that sometimes if there's not a deliberate effort to be holistic, you know, to look at what kind of animals have you brought in, are they able to survive? And I think long-term investments require that there is a deliberate effort to look at the issues that have made programs in the past fail just to make sure that it is sustainable. Otherwise, it's really just successful, but for a very short time. Last year, Bolivia was set to receive one of the large chicken donations from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but flat-out refused and called the gesture insulting. So what if billionaire philanthropists like Bill Gates are making decisions for developing countries they wouldn't make themselves? Well, I think go in and talk to the people and see what they consider their needs are. This is Peter Logan, physicist at the University of Technology, Sydney. And back to the village where everyone is happy and living a wonderful life remote from Western civilization. Um, perhaps they don't want any aid. Peter is also a huge advocate for the appropriate technology movement. Appropriate technology is a good name. But the definition I like is appropriate technology, where it's appropriate to the environment, it's appropriate to the culture, appropriate to the economic situation in the particular community we're looking at. 
so that when we introduce the technology, it doesn't destroy the environment, it doesn't destroy the culture, it doesn't destroy the economic resources in the village. But when you think of technology, you think of computers or large-scale projects like dams or irrigation systems. You don't think of chickens. There's the word techniques, so is used with technology. So it's appropriate techniques. So really, any aid, large-scale technological projects or simply donating a few chickens, they need to be done in a culturally, economically, and sustainable way. Otherwise, the project, the chickens, and the people all end up worse off than when they started. A fact Logan learned the hard way while doing research at a university in Papua New Guinea. You know, I could tell you loads of stories about failed appropriate technology projects. Give me, like, give me one, your favorite um, uh, story of a failed technology project. Well, what happened was that the university was outside of Ley, and there was a dirt road, and probably it was about seven, eight kilometers, and there were villages along the road. So someone said, well, we should do something to help these villages. As Dr. Logan and his team were passing by villages while traveling on the road in and out of Ley, they noticed the women of Papua New Guinea traveling great distances on foot to collect water from the river and bring it back to their community. So being a person who was a mechanical engineer, knew about hydraulic rams, set up a project which had a hydraulic ram that pumped the water from the river into the village. But what happened was that it was very good while it lasted, but very soon um, it got contaminated. There was leaves in the pipeline. And so what happened is we just reverted straight back to the women going and collecting the water from from the river and bringing it to the village. So that first project in Papua New Guinea, you know, you were there. You know, these projects you talked about, the, the ones you've described to me, there's the people actually on the ground interacting with the communities. Mm. And still, these technologies are failing. What do you have to say about companies that are administering technological aid to the communities that are never even on the ground? They, they set it up, the contractors go in, they build it, and they, they leave. How could, is it possible that these people know what the communities want? Well, I don't think they, you know, they do. See, I mean, even when we were there in Papua New Guinea, um, even the United Nations, when they came in to sort of look for a project, well, they came in in, in a Mercedes-Benz and would only could only drive to the end of the tarred road. So um, it's probably if your if your village was on a tarred road, you'd probably might get a get some money for a project. But if it was not, then if it was a remote village, then probably not much chance. Failed projects like the one Logan was a part of in Papua New Guinea are not uncommon, though. And despite multiple failures, large-scale projects with homogeneous solutions at their core continue to be rolled out. Um, for example, in Africa, we need malaria beds that stop people getting bitten by mosquitoes and contracting malaria. Nearly 800,000 people die each year of malaria. 90% of the deaths from the disease take place in African countries. And like poverty and food shortages on the continent, the Gates Foundation has donated resources to help solve the problem. 
Why are technologies even given to these communities? Why do we bring these technologies in? Is it to help? What's the point? Well, that's a very good question, which I'd never, never thought of before. If a village is quite happy by itself, even though from looking at it from the outside, we say these people are poorly off, is there any point in introducing a technology to improve, in inverted commas, uh, their lifestyle? One of the uh, challenges that, that people throw at the Gates Foundation is the idea that they promote the idea that we can find simple, quick-fix solutions to all kinds of uh, poverty issues. This is Professor Graham Brown from the University of Western Australia. So, for instance, they might be promoting vaccinations as a way to improve uh, livelihoods and well-being for people in poor countries. And that's undoubtedly true, that vaccinations are a very good and effective and cost-effective way of promoting well-being. But the critics suggest that this is not tackling the underlying issues that often drive poverty within particular countries, so that this is not quite putting a sticky plaster over a gaping wound, but it's certainly addressing the symptoms rather than the causes of the problems in developing countries. Critics of donor programs like the Gates Foundation have called their approach technocratic, based on a belief mobile phone apps and Western medicine can fix the problems of poverty, but totally ignore the underlying political and social problems that prevent economic growth in the developing world. Brown believes it's not for the lack of goodwill from big donors or philanthropists. Most believe they are helping. But the thing that makes these programs fail is the belief that there is a homogenous, one-stop-fix-all solution to poverty that usually is not appropriate for the country they are trying to empower. The idea that it's uh, populated by mostly white, mostly male, mostly Western-educated experts who come in and diagnose problems and find solutions, which often look remarkably similar to the solutions that they've implemented in different contexts at different countries. So many of the problems we see in many developing countries are to do with deep-set political biases, whether it's elite capture by particular political groups that control the state or varying degrees of ethnic or or religious bias within a society, which, of course, we also have to have in Western societies, I should say, but that you're not addressing those political problems of inequality and injustice through these technocratic solutions necessarily. So projects like the Gates Foundation Chicken Giveaway or the Hydraulic Dam Dr. Logan built in Papua New Guinea, even though they are designed to help, they have the potential to leave the community worse off. But having chickens as part of the equation, many see as a good idea. But exactly what role these chickens would play and how countries would go about receiving an additional 100,000 chickens, the details would have to be perfect. Robin again. The fact that I believe Bill has had a Damascus Road experience and understood the importance of chickens. It's all good for me. What's important to remember is that not all chickens are equal. So we have different production systems and those production systems need to match the circumstances where those chickens have to survive. There's a lot of literature out there. The Gates people are smart. They'll do their homework. And uh, we have to hope that uh, chickens and the households to which they go will be better for it. Miles Herbert with that story.
job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Last week, lead project architect of Tesla, Elon Musk, announced he would be building the world's largest lithium-ion battery for South Australia as a backup power source. And with much political folly and fallout following last year's statewide blackout, many are welcoming the idea, but some are also questioning whether or not it's necessary. Jeffrey James from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, caught up with Think Sustainability's Liat Samaglu to talk about how the battery would work and also its purpose. The major purpose for the battery, as I understand it, is a system security service. In case there's another blackout like there was last year. In case there threatens to be another blackout. Uh-huh. And uh, what actually happens when a blackout comes is that the grid frequency crashes. Mm-hmm. So we're used to, I think most people know that 50 hertz comes out of the PowerPoint and uh, you can hear the buzz as yeah. you walk along the street sometimes. Well, that's fairly strictly maintained. In the September blackout, it crashed at a rate that was much faster than anything connected to the grid could keep up with. So all the generators fell over and that's essentially the, the mechanism of a blackout. Now, if you have some first responder, really fast resource, Mm -hmm. and batteries are perfect for that, then it can kick in very quickly and correct the frequency and hold it there in time for larger generators to come along and be brought online. So I think first responder is the the best analogy. Hmm. Like a backup generator, I guess, as well, in a sense. It's sort of, so there are already backup generators. Now, whether or not they were running or should have been running, I mean, these questions have been asked, and I'm I'm sure that's that's for another conversation. But the market operator knows how to run the grid, but it doesn't necessarily have all the fast responding resources that it needs, given the high levels of renewable energy in South Australia, especially. Uh, Ultimately, this may happen in other states too, that they reach that point. But at the moment, South Australia is leading, as I mentioned, on a world scale. There are very few grids with, from memory, 57% wind by energy in the average year. That's extraordinary. Is it also good because South Australia is kind of a good size to be able to test this out on a, I'm not going to say smaller scale, but, Mm. you know, a a more medium sort of scale? I I think it's, uh, yeah, in a way it's walking before you run. So Australia's pretty good at remote power stations. We have lots of power stations and a number of those are having... having renewable supplies essentially to offset the cost of diesel or gas. So that certainly makes economic sense. And and I think people have learnt how to use batteries to balance the solar or the wind, whatever diesel generators remain, and the the load, the customer load. So we're learning how to do that on a small scale and know that quite well. On a, a state grid is much larger... But perhaps it's a it's an easier job than the entire country. So in a way, it's it's quite fortunate that South Australia has led the way, while other states are holding back a little bit. And we can we can learn all the techniques we need to know. I think any engineer would tell you that there's no fundamental problem. It can be done. We can go 100% renewables. It's it's certainly doable in engineering terms, and probably it makes sense economically as well. But uh, the techniques have not been practiced enough for most market operators or most system operators to to have a 
a ready-to-hand set of tools. So the battery is an important tool and uh, will show everybody how, how it should be done. Why is battery power considered renewable? When I think about when I use, you know, a, a normal disposable battery, mm-hmm. it's done, it, you throw it out in the end and then you think, oh, that was a bit of a waste, that battery. <laughs> it is, and it's a serious <laughs> environmental concern. And my, my colleagues are actually looking into battery recycling. And indeed, there are emerging standards and services to recycle uh, lithium batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lead-acid battery recycling is quite mature. Mm-hmm. Uh, lithium battery recycling is newer and is becoming mainstream. I think everyone in the industry is concerned about the life cycle effects of having a large number of batteries. Certainly disposable batteries are not the way you want to go. Um, <laughs> so uh, this battery will be, it'll be more like a, a massive laptop battery. So yeah. it's rechargeable. It's plugged into the grid all the time. It'll draw energy out and it'll put energy in. And that can be controlled either for profit or to provide a technical service like frequency support. But eventually it could sort of die. Eventually it will die and so typically a battery cell, the core battery cells uh, are pretty much the same as the ones in your laptop or in an electric car and they might last 10-15 years. It's to be determined, it depends on the operating regime and at that point you need to replace the cells the cells themselves, they will need to be replaced after something like 15 years. There'll be plenty more cells at that time, and hopefully the old cells at that time can also be recycled and the materials extracted in a, in a sustainable way. Well, obviously, that's what we'd all like to see, and uh, there'll be some regulatory and economic drivers for that over time. So what is the best use for lithium batteries as power? The range of applications of batteries is quite large, mm-hmm. and lithium batteries are fairly multi-purpose. So they can deliver a lot of sudden, quick power, the sharp kick that I mentioned to get the frequency back. They are also reasonably good for bulk energy storage, so they're a reasonable compromise. There are batteries that might be better at the high-power services. Lead acid, for example, has very high... It's called cranking power because it's used to crank the shaft of an engine. That's why they're so universal in engines. They're very powerful batteries. And uh, you could say, well, a lead-acid battery would actually perform better for this particular application. But to serve a combination of applications, lithium is a, is a pretty good compromise and a pretty economic compromise. So I, I think that's what it comes down to. We'll be looking at these sorts of large-scale battery-powered plants like in the future with South Australia. Is this, it's, it's the first in the world. Uh, it's the first in the world at this scale, yeah. and yes, we will. In fact, I believe there are, there are even now two additional projects by another company that have been proposed, one maybe in Victoria. So I think it's the start of a new new direction, and I, I really think it will make the grid work better and be more adaptable to integrating renewable energy. Jeffrey James, Research Principal from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Liat Samaglou. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really does help us get discovered. For more information, you can also head to 2SER.com and this show is made possible by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. Catch you next week.